Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted January 12, 2018, we preview highlights of the new WPJ winter issue, cover line Native Voices, about indigenous peoples, their problems, protests, and progress. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. You were here long before any of us were here. You are special people. You are really incredible people. And I have to, from the heart, from the absolute heart, we appreciate what you've done, how you've done it, the bravery that you displayed, and the love that you have for your country. Had he been able to resist another Pocahontas jibe at Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has in the past claimed some Native American roots, President Donald Trump would have scored a bullseye with his White House honor for some remarkable indigenous heroes of World War II, the Navajo Code Talkers. Their unwritten language permitted battlefield radio communications by U.S. Marines that Japanese foes could never translate. But uncontested celebration of indigenous peoples is rare around the world today. The poor situation in which so many were left by foreign conquerors has created problems, both economic and moral, and not a little guilt. And while various native communities have won praise from some for defiantly defending the environment, others see them standing in the way of progress and development for the general good. The new winter issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Native Voices, explores how a broad and growing indigenous people's movement has become what Jessica Laudis, the WPJ's new top editor, calls, quote, not only one of the most significant social justice movements of our time, but also among the most multifaceted. And for an overview of the new issue, she and I talked about it recently for this podcast. Jessica Laudis, congratulations on becoming editor of World Policy Journal, and welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Start with the definition of indigenous you use to choose subjects for the issue. There's not really an accepted universal definition of it. So when thinking about the issue, we decided to go with um, the definition, the criteria crafted by um, the United Nations when they were in the process of putting together um, uh, some treaties on the matter. And that defines indigenous as groups distinguished by social, economic, and cultural conditions and having descended from the population that inhabited the land at the time of conquest. So um, many different groups fall in that rubric. How much of the Earth's total population is considered indigenous, and in how many areas uh, are they concentrated? It's many, many people. It's 370 million uh, around the world. And there are uh, seven delineated regions, which um, the UN also calls sociocultural regions, but everywhere. There are indigenous people from uh, New Zealand to South America to Russia. Um, One of the most interesting parts of putting together this issue was just... um, thinking about how incredibly expansive and, as I said, multifaceted um, indigenous movements are around the world and trying to basically come up with a way of reflecting that while knowing that it was, you know, it was going to be incomplete on some level. Uh, Some of these groups benefit from natural resources on their lands, others from casinos, but overall, where do the indigenous fall on the scale of rich to poor? Um unfortunately, much closer to the poor side. Um, Indigenous peoples internationally account for 15% of the world's poor. 
On the other hand, you note the indigenous safeguard an extraordinary wealth of non-human biodiversity. Talk about that and the example spotlighted by an article in the new issue on colonialism and climate justice in the Caribbean. We have a, um, a wonderful piece by the Taino leader um, from Puerto Rico, Roberto Mucaro Borrero, who writes about the, um, the legacy of colonialism in the Caribbean. And his piece um, calls attention to the incredible natural resources in the Caribbean, um, Puerto Rico, and sort of more expansively on the other islands, and um, talks about the ways in which they've been exploited and the um, the, the kind of resource extraction that's happened and how this is linked to what's going on now with climate change and how part of the indigenous people's movement is very bound up in climate justice. Environmental factors were also key to the subject of this issue's photographic section, Portfolio, the 2016 protests at Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. Remind us about them and their larger significance as you and the photographer see it. Right, so we have a, um, a really kind of stunning portfolio of images by a photographer, uh, Josue Rivas, who spent nine months at Standing Rock. He's indigenous, and he was documenting the movement. And just to remind everybody, um, part of the protest at Standing Rock was, um, well, the, the main thrust was against the Dakota Access oil pipeline, which was um, tentatively going to be built and since unfortunately has been built in the region. But... Um, while that was being protested, there were um, can, there, a, a community basically developed, and um, Rivas documents the kind of formation of the community, how things changed as the seasons progressed, um, and some encounters with officials. Um, but really, it's not what's most moving about the the images is not the the moments of antagonism, but the moments of community that are that are evident. And um, he really he captures how. Um, communities can form in the kind of the heart of the movement and how it's related to uh, relationship to the natural environment and to kind of developing a sense of community around that. One of the main motivations for the new issues theme was the 10th anniversary this fall of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And you got a very special inside view of its long and contentious creation. Who wrote it and what's the bottom line on its importance a decade later? She is part of the Inuit community and has been very active in um, political movements, and she's also a scholar at the University of Alaska. Dali Sambodoro um, was involved right from the beginning with um, crafting the Declaration of Indigenous Rights, and she was in the room in Panama City when they first started talking about it, and she was there 25 years later when it was finally signed. Um, and essentially her essay is about the the problem that many states had when considering um, the issue of indigenous rights, which is that they were afraid that they would, in acknowledging indigenous rights, they would be giving up some of their own sovereignty, which was um, not really factually, there, there was not as much of a reason to be concerned about that as, as they should have thought. But negotiating that concern and sort of dealing with many, many um, of the actors all at once uh, was a much more long and complicated process than she envisioned. Um, one of the original working titles of the piece was Herding Cats. So just to give you an idea <laughs> of the kind of difficulties that she, that she was working with. And how pleased is she at the results 10 years later and the effects? Um, I, th I think she rightly considers it one of the most important um, pieces of um, 
one of the most important treaties on the matter. I mean, it's um, the interesting thing about the UN treaties is that they're not they're not law, but they sort of serve in the place of of law in the sense that they're everyone opts into it. It's it's um, they're non-binding, but at the same time, there's a great symbolic import. And they've been um, the treaty has been cited as precedent in a number of other cases to project protect indigenous rights. So in that sense, I think it's been very effective. The significance of treaties for the indigenous is also the focus of an article from New Zealand. Say more about that. Right. So we had two scholars from New Zealand, Claire Charters and Tracy Ware, wrote about the um, original founding treaty. New Zealand's founding treaty between the British and the, and the Maori community comes down to this treaty, which is fascinating because there are two different versions of it. There's one written in Maori and there's one written in English, and they're slightly different. And uh, legal scholars have made the point over and over again that in the Maori version of the treaty, the tribal leaders who signed, and there were many who signed, did not conceive of it as giving up their sovereignty, whereas that was clearly not the case on the British side. So you have this treaty that's widely considered one of the more... Um, not to say progressive exactly, but um, one of the more sort of um, treaties that's oriented towards moving forward indigenous rights, but it's actually premised on this foundational flaw. And it's been at the heart of many disputes over um, indigenous rights in New Zealand, and it's created, it's created a lot of issues. And so it's, it's this, New Zealand is in an interesting position where it is trying to take seriously indigenous rights, and there have also been tribunals to this effect uh, to consider um, violations of the treaty in the past, and meanwhile, it's, the entire premise is flawed. The new issue includes the perspectives of leaders in various indigenous communities. Talk about the article you call Parks and Arbitration. Oh, that's a great piece by um, a Udeji activist named Pavel Sulianziga, and the Udeji are an indigenous community in Russia, and um, they are one of the, only a, few, a handful of indigenous communities in Russia, I believe. But he um, was involved in tribal activism, which ultimately resulted in Russia's first national park to safeguard indigenous rights. So it's, um, it's a first-hand account. It's, it's got all kinds of unexpected twists and turns in the story, but it's about his, um, his fight with corrupt local officials, how the Putin administration ultimately turned out to be an ally, and how they worked with ecologists and preservationists. Originally, the, the idea, part of the Putin administration's um, interest in the park was they wanted to um, create a, a safe zone for the Amur tiger, which is the largest cat in the world. And the tiger shares the same land as the Udeje community. So they ended up kind of, um, Putin, the administration and the Udeje ended up kind of unifying their interests in a way and creating this national park, which has been really monumental for safeguarding the community. There's one headline, Stand Up for Your Rights from Bolivia. That is a, as told to, essay written by a Quechua coca farmer, um, Roxana, Roxana Ariadonga, um, who talks about um, living in the Chapare region of Bolivia, which is where the majority of the coca in the country comes from. And the differences in living there under when um, American-oriented uh, administrations were in office who were enacting the forced eradication policy, which is basically just destroying all the, the coca, versus um, how things have changed under Evo Morales, who's the country's first indigenous president. 
and um, Roxana basically discusses how Morales's ascent to power has had a huge impact on indigenous communities in the region and how um, coca is not, at least not in the area, not um, used as a drug. So it's about kind of preserving this traditional farming and using it as a way of um, advancing the interests of the community. It's, it's really fascinating. The new issue's big question feature asks, how has migration affected indigenous cultural and political identities? There's a pessimistic view of Beijing's intentions from an ethnic Uyghur leader in East Turkestan, China. Talk about that. The author is a man named Omar Kanat, and he, is, he writes about the forced assimilation policies that Beijing has implemented on the Uyghur region for decades now, which basically entailed moving and entails moving um, Han Chinese into the region, suppressing Uyghur language and um, their, their Muslim community and their uh, right to practice their religion and incentivizing the watering down of that culture. And, and it's, unfortunately, it's been very effective in changing the demographics of the region and also making it very difficult for Uyghurs to um, move to other parts of, of China. And from a Tuareg poet in the Sahara, fear of changes wrought by migrants who were just passing through. Yeah, that's a fascinating piece and a perspective I hadn't um, considered before, before this piece came in. Um, he writes about, um, Hawad is the name of the poet, he writes about the economic discrepancies between, he's from Niger, between the, um, the uh, locals in Niger and the economic migrants from other parts of Africa who are um, basically creating a kind of income uh, an income inequality within Niger as they stop on their way to Europe. His point is that there are lots of migrants who are off to make better lives for themselves and actually have more financial wherewithal than the locals. And so in stopping over, they've influenced the economy to the extent that um, it's actually become more difficult for locals to live there. But there's an ironically optimistic answer from Julian Brave Noisecat in the United States. Talk about his belief that the very post-colonial policies meant to integrate or eliminate the indigenous has had the opposite effect, at least in some growing urban indigenous areas. Julian wrote this really moving essay about the Native American relocation policies and how, I believe this phrase is policies designed to engineer or to trigger indigenous social death have sometimes had the opposite effect. So his speculative idea is that perhaps some of the policies that have put in place to oppress these communities for so long could actually end up having the opposite effect and lead to new forms of activism and new forms of community building, which might end up um, opening new avenues for how things can turn out in the future. Finally, talk about the cover image of the new issue as described by its creator, the artist Sadie Redwing. We have a pretty great cover, which I'm very excited about this issue. Sadie Redwing is a, um, a native graphic designer who's written elsewhere um, about decolonizing design, which is, I encourage everybody to look up and read. We approached Sadie and asked her to basically design a cover that could somehow speak to this enormous issue, and she did a beautiful job. And her, um, her idea was to incorporate elements of different um, native Rep, uh, native cultures without kind of defaulting to stereotypes or to Pan-Asian imagery. So as you'll, the cover is blue and yellow, and it's oriented ar- around um, a few sort of motifs, and then we have the um, 
the UN declaration around it, but she used woodlands, floral petals, plains, geometric symbols, and southeastern basket lines as some of the repeating motifs. And I think it really pops. It's a coolish. It's a cool cover. Jessica Loudis, thank you. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. Jessica Loudis is the new top editor at World Policy Journal. She previewed the new winter issue, Coverline Native Voices, about indigenous peoples, their problems, protests, and progress. Also featured in the new WPJ winter issue, in addition to the articles already mentioned, you'll find reports about India's pressure on Rohingya refugees, Portugal's bust and boom economic prospects, Nigeria's growing cinema industry, Nollywood, and much more. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Jessica Laudis, Managing Editor Laurel Jerombeck, Podcast Producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.